this is going to sound radical perhaps, but these really are two different religions. To say that my religion is Jesus died for my sins so I can go to heaven so that I can now be a good person. That is not the same as understanding and knowing and loving the triune God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength now and knowing that you will enjoy him for eternity. This is Warrior Podcast, changing the world by introducing warriors to the warrior God. I'm your host, Elizabeth Andrade, here with Connor Shanahan. And if you missed last week's episode, you might want to consider hitting the pause on this one, going back to check it out, because a lot of our content today might not make as much sense if you don't listen to our previous episode. It was a doozy last week. We attempted to tackle the question, who is God? That's a pretty big question. It's a huge question. That is one that has plagued people in good ways, and perhaps in not so good ways, for all of time. But our answer to this question, hopefully, is this simple sentence that basically we just kept repeating last week, hopefully in a helpful manner. But the simple sentence to answer the question, who is God, is this. One divine nature, three distinct persons. Our God is triune. Our God is three in one. He is one God, one divine nature, eternally existing, and three distinct persons. Oh, and that's significant to us because... If we didn't have a triune God, if he was just a singular one, just one essence God, and there weren't three, God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, he wouldn't have created out of love. Yeah, it would be impossible. I mean, philosophically, theologically, if you look at the God of Judaism, a singular God with one singular essence, one singular person. If you look at the God of Islam, one singular God with one singular person, I'm not sure how they could be loving because they have existed, according to these religions, for all of time, just by themselves. Who were they loving? I mean, they would have had to create something to be loved. To demonstrate that love. If, yeah. they, if they contained it for all of eternity, they would, they would be in need of some sort of created order in order to express that love. Doesn't that sound like a weak God? Unfortunately, it does. And I think that details and that hopefully paints somewhat of the picture of the need for the Trinity. That our God clearly defined in scripture as one divine nature, three distinct persons, as out of the abundance of perfect love that he has experienced and enjoyed for all of eternity, created out of abundance of that love. And therefore he is love, and therefore he can love, and therefore he created out of love because he has always loved. The Father has always loved the Son, and the Father has always loved the Spirit. So he didn't need a creation, which is a good thing for us because that means he's not a weak God. He's a strong God. He's a warrior God. He is a warrior God. And this is a warrior podcast where we talk about the warrior God because we believe that the warrior God will change your life. One of the most significant implications of this doctrine is that God desires relationship with us. That sounds crazy. I mean, we think about Christianity. I always heard Christianity is more about right or wrong, but Christianity actually isn't primarily about a lifestyle change. It's about knowing God, knowing the love of God is the very thing that makes us loving. That's wildly significant. And you're so right that oftentimes it's easy for us to think of Christianity as a moral religion, or we think of the scriptures, maybe even subconsciously, we think of the scriptures as a moral book, a moral guidebook. How do you live a good life? That's disgraceful to the Bible. I mean, it is. That's, that's not at all what the scriptures are getting at. Mm -hmm. And you see this playing out with Christians as well who, and I find myself leaning this way sometimes and I need to consider my motives, but oftentimes we want to listen to sermons. We want to listen to podcasts that are all about practical lifestyle change. And I'm talking from a Christian perspective even. We want to learn how to be a good husband, how to be a good leader, how to overcome anxiety. And while practical advice is, is good and right, that certainly has its place, 
that's not pointing to Christ per se. Yeah. Self-help isn't really self-help until you know the love of God and you love God. Absolutely. The only thing that can transform your life and then therefore make you a better person, for sure. The goal is to know Christ. Christ will transform your life. And as a side effect of that, as a byproduct of experiencing the love of Christ, I think you will become a better person. However, that's clearly not the goal of the scriptures. That's not the goal of our faith. The goal of our faith is to know Christ, to worship God and enjoy God. The point of every sermon ought to be the point of our lives, which is to worship and enjoy God forever. And this is the most exciting life that you can have. And just a little side note too, I think like it is important to know that there are things that God has put in place in the Bible, right and wrong, but those things help us to know and love God even more. And those things, yeah, they reveal more of the nature and character of God. They reveal what God loves, what he requires of us, what he asks of us, and what he invites us into. But yeah, those rules don't exist in and of themselves. Those are guideposts that point us to understand the nature and character of God. Because as we understand the nature and character of God, we ought to be driven to worship. So what, what is the point of all this that we're discussing today? Why are we spending time talking about the Trinity? Yeah, we mentioned this a bit last week, but for a refresher, I think it needs to be said. We use this quote in which this pastor said, The Trinity is not a problem to be solved. The Trinity is a God to be worshipped. And so in all that we do and all that we're talking about today, the reason why we're spending time to break down this doctrine is because we think that it's important. We think that if the chief end of man, if the goal and purpose of life is to enjoy God and glorify him forever, we have to know who God is. And we also think that if you do know who God is, you will be compelled to worship. And that lifestyle of worship, that knowledge of God that leads to worship will produce in you a joy greater than anything that can be found in this world. Connor, I heard you saying that knowledge of the true God ought to lead to worship, will lead to worship. What about the Old Testament? It may be hard for us to understand how can reading a bunch of laws and difficult narrative help us to know the triune God leading to worship? Certainly, yeah. If we're, if we're going to know God, as we said last week, that definitely bears repeating. We ought to study him, know him, learn about him in the manner that he has revealed himself, which is one generally through nature, through the creation itself, but more specifically, and I think more importantly for us, specifically in scripture. That's how God has decided to reveal himself. And so if we look at the entirety of the scriptures, if we look at Genesis, the very first book of the Bible, all the way through Revelation, the very last book of the Bible, if what we're saying here is correct, if God is three in one, if God is Trinity, if that is significant, we ought to be able to see that from cover to cover. And I think we do. I think we clearly do. And I think this is actually a significant point to pose and answer this question. Why does the Trinity matter? If we don't have the Trinity, I'm not sure the point of the Old Testament. And that's going to sound controversial, but consider this, that in Judaism, they read the same Old Testament that we do in Christianity, and they come out with a very different understanding of a yeah. very different God. What is the difference between Judaism and Christianity? Sure, Judaism most simply would believe in the God of Israel as one divine essence and one divine person. We, as Christians, would believe that God has eternally existed, three distinct persons, and that the Son of God in the New Testament has revealed himself, became incarnate in Jesus Christ. Now, if you look at the Old Testament, I think from the very beginning, you see the triune God creating all things. You see the triune God creating mankind, desiring relationship with him, inviting him to participate as citizens of his divine kingdom, as his glorious family. And then you see the fall of man. You see mankind disobey God, which leads to the fracture of all things, the fracture of the cosmos, of the universe, why life is hard. The most critical point, I think, in the entire Bible, but certainly of the narrative of Genesis comes in that third chapter, right after the fall. 
right after mankind disobeys, right after mankind falls and brings onto themselves judgment from a holy God because they disobeyed the holy God. And yet God doesn't leave them in their mess. God doesn't leave the humans in their brokenness. God promises a savior. God Genesis pro- 3.15. Come on, somebody. <laughs> God promises a hero, a Messiah, who will defeat evil, crush Satan, and lead God's people back into the promised land, back into this paradise that God had designed them for. So, most simply, Jewish people would say that they are still awaiting that Messiah. They're still awaiting that Genesis 3.15 hero. Whereas we would say, I think it's clear from scripture that Jesus Christ is that Messiah. Jesus Christ is that hero. He is that savior. If you don't have the Trinity, then as a Christian, I'm not sure what you do with the Old Testament. Because if you don't understand the Trinity, then the Old Testament becomes... Law? Yeah, the Old Testament becomes a book about law, a book about rules. It becomes a story of Israel and their engagement with, with their one God and their constant desire for a hero to save them. But if we can view the Old Testament through this beautiful, glorious lens of the Trinity, which I think is is how the Old Testament is meant to be read, how the Old Testament instructs us to read it, and certainly how Jesus instructs us to read the Old Testament in Luke 24, saying that it all points to him. The Old Testament points to Jesus Christ. And so if you read the Old Testament through that lens, you will see the workings of the triune God from all of eternity. There's this kind of unfortunate situation or this unfortunate belief that we see today in Christianity where You'll have people say, well, I'm a New Testament Christian. What does that mean? That's my question. Well, I mean, if you think about it, in the when we read the New Testament, you see examples of Paul teaching, preaching the gospel, Jesus even preaching the good news, which is the gospel, but we don't have the New Testament yet in those situations. Correct. This is kind of scandalous, but you see verses in the New Testament where the Apostle Paul writes things like, all scripture is God-breathed and useful for teaching and rebuke and correction and authoritative. He's only referring to the Old Testament there. Because the New Testament is currently in the process of being written as he writes that down. The apostles, the disciples, the early followers of Jesus, all they had was the Old Testament. All Jesus taught from was the Old Testament. And so if you don't look at the Old Testament as this portrait of the triune God creating out of an abundance of love, desiring relationship with mankind, desiring to create a kingdom and a family of citizens that participate in God's world and his universe— I'm just not sure what the point of the Old Testament is then. I think what people maybe mean to say when they say a New Testament Christian is they're speaking about Jesus dying on the cross for sins. Exactly. And certainly that is the most significant event in redemptive history. The point that I think we're trying to make here is that if you say that you're only a New Testament Christian, that just doesn't make sense to me. If we're only New Testament Christians, then all we have is our little book that we can run off with. And then you could leave Judaism with their book. That's the same as ours, but they come to a different conclusion. I think that one of the implications of the doctrine of the Trinity and why it's so significant is that you you come to a true, proper, holistic understanding of our faith. Let me say this in a controversial statement. Christianity, our faith, is so much more than Jesus died on the cross to save me from hell. Our faith is so much more than that. And to a point that you just brought up, Elizabeth, about Jesus in Matthew chapter 4, uh, Matthew records Jesus as proclaiming the gospel, proclaiming the good news of the kingdom. And we think of the good news as Jesus dying on the cross, but he hadn't done that yet. He hadn't done that yet, and yet that was the message that he was preaching. Mm-hmm. So how can that make sense? 
It can only make sense if we understand how the triune God has worked for all of redemptive history, for all of time. And it only makes sense if we view that promise in Genesis 3.15 as this significant promise of a coming Messiah that's fulfilled in Christ. And the Jews would have understood that in that day because they were constantly looking forward to that Messiah coming. I think that's the message of the Old Testament, is this broken anticipation of a hero to come. You see these giants in the faith like Abraham and Moses and David and Solomon who rise up and uh, seem like they might be candidates to fulfill that Genesis 3.15 promise, and yet they fail. Because human beings have a terribly difficult time fulfilling the promises of God. And we're left at the end of the Old Testament with this broken anticipation of, if only someone could come and fulfill these promises in our place. And that's what Jesus does. It's so significant. It's so beautiful. It's so glorious. And we miss that if we miss the Trinity. If we don't understand our faith as the triune God creating all things, creating out of an abundance of his love, a citizen of kingdoms, we keep saying it, people who have then rebelled, yet God promised a savior, God promised a redemptive hero, and we see that promise play out throughout the Old Testament, and we see the hero arrive in the new. It's this whole picture of a triune God desiring to redeem and restore and dwell with his creation. How does this go against the narrative of Jesus died for my sins so that I can get into heaven and now my job is to be a good person? Yeah, that's not the point of our faith. It seems like that's a controversial statement, but the point of our faith is not simply to avoid going to hell. If that were the case, once we were saved, once we purchased that golden ticket to to free us from our destiny in hell, then we would be removed from this world. But certainly there's more to it than that. God has placed us here to enjoy his presence and to be an ambassador of his presence to be a disciple maker in this world in which we live. So to say that our faith is only about Jesus died for my sins so that I can be saved from hell and be a good person, I think that just misses the central point of our faith, which is to know and love God himself. And where we get off on this is where we put so much emphasis on Jesus died to save me from hell and now I'm free to live my life, but my life is about being a good person. It warps into this worldview where you view the Bible as a rule book, as a morality guide, instead of a book about God a book about enjoying God himself. And so I think these really are, this is going to sound radical perhaps, but these really are two different religions. To say that my religion is Jesus died for my sins so I can go to heaven so that I can now be a good person. That is not the same as understanding and knowing and loving the triune God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength now and knowing that you will enjoy him for for eternity. But I think that there is a different perspective in focusing on getting your ticket paid so that you don't have to go to hell, focusing on morality, I think, unfortunately, that's what some of these people who say, oh, I'm a New Testament Christian, I'm a New Testament Christian, there's an almost an overemphasis on escaping hell and being a moral person now, when in reality, again, the Bible's not a moral guide. The Bible is a book about God. The scriptures reveal to us the beauty and glory of the triune God who created us for relationship with him. And so there's a different focus there, if that makes sense. Yeah, well, and to your point, Connor, this just reminded me about something that we read in the book, Delighting in the Trinity. The example was given of a police officer giving you a ticket, and then he decides to revoke the ticket. But when the police officer revokes the ticket and takes away your punishment, it doesn't stir affections for the police officer. It doesn't stir a love in your heart for the police officer. Gratitude, maybe, thankfulness, but you're not going to love this police officer for taking away a punishment that you deserve. Just like if you think of Jesus dying on the cross as something that happened just to take away your punishment of hell, it doesn't stir affection in your heart. Yes, yes, and God created us out of affection and for affection with him. Okay, so in fact, we were made in the image of God. So our invitation is to participate in the fellowship loving God the Father through the Son. 
So we cannot say that the purpose of Jesus dying on the cross was simply to take our sins away. There's a lot more to it. Christianity is about so much more than just fire insurance. So much more than just not going to hell when you die. That God has an, an, an immense purpose for you now. God wants you to experience the glory of his presence now as a temple of his Holy Spirit, as an ambassador for him, a disciple maker for him in the here and now, also knowing that when all things are remade, we will enjoy him forever. We will love him forever. I think that's that's the crucial point that you brought up is, is affections and love. And I think that's the distinction here is that understanding that the triune God, that the Father has always loved the Son, has always loved the Spirit, and therefore created humanity out of an abundance of that love is so crucial because when we get off on that, when we miss this important aspect of the doctrine of the Trinity, we are apt to miss the beauty of God and the invitation to find joy in his presence, the invitation to have our affections and love stirred for him. Christianity, those who are disciples and followers of Christ, those who know Christ, love him and experience this loving relationship because that's what our triune God created us for. It's so much more than just not going to hell when you die. It's about experiencing your destiny, your purpose, which was a person who was created to enjoy and love and spend eternity dwelling with God and worshiping him forever. Yeah, and to be sanctified through knowing, loving, and delighting in the triune God. And going off of that, let's talk about sin. Yeah, I think in this, we definitely don't want to downplay the seriousness of sin. We definitely don't want to say that repenting of sin is, is not important or that Jesus dying on the cross to atone for our sins is not significant. That's the furthest thing from the truth. What we're saying is, while that, that is certainly the pinnacle of redemptive history, that the triune God has, has created us to love and serve him and to enjoy fellowship with him. And Christ has made that possible. The ministry of Jesus Christ has absolutely made that possible. And that's the pinnacle of our faith. When we place a hyper focus on being saved from our sin, we're at risk of missing the love and the affection and the passion and the joy that we can experience in the Trinity. But that does leave the question, okay, well, what do we do with sin? The question of sin is more than just doing right or wrong. It's a matter of the heart. 100, yes. The scriptures is, is not a morality book, as we've been saying here. And you're right, it's, it's more than simply right or wrong. I think you can look at, again, we're mentioning Genesis here, the first three chapters of Genesis paint this picture of creation where God created all things, God created mankind to enjoy him and flourish in his presence, and mankind refused to submit to God's design for flourishing. I think that's actually a more nuanced, accurate, and biblical definition of sin, is refusing to submit to God's design for flourishing, or God's design for all things to work and instead following your own way and your own desires. And why would that be? Why would we do that? Is it because we're loving ourselves more than we're loving God? Exactly, it's the role of affection. I think I think that's what we're trying to get at here is that one of the implications of the doctrine of the Trinity is the triune God inviting us to experience affection and love in his presence. And so without a doubt, when we get off on that, when we miss this beautiful triune truth, the beautiful truth of the Trinity, and the invitation into joy, the invitation into love, we are so much more apt, we're so much more likely to fall into these sins of loving ourselves more than we love God, or loving our own desires more than we love God's desires. And that's a better picture of what sin truly is. It's not simply about a list of rules that you should or should not do. God has invited you to enjoy him most. God has invited you to experience loving fellowship within the loving fellowship that he has experienced for all of eternity. It's amazing how God invites us to be close to him. I don't think that there is any other word to define that other than love. So let me let me wrap up this, this point with this. We as Christians are created to be and meant to be a people of love because 
our God, our God is love, period. And that's true because our God is triune. Because the Father has always loved the Son, has always loved the Spirit for all of eternity. Out of their abundant love that they have experienced eternally within themselves, within the triune God, God sovereignly decided to create us. And because of that beautiful triune truth, we are to be a people of love. We are to experience love in the presence of God. So Christianity is about so much more than just not going to hell when you die and being a good person. Christianity, the whole point of our faith is to love and adore and worship and know and glorify the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. And be loved by Him. Yes, and be loved by Him without a doubt because out of His abundant affection, He has created you and invited you into the most loving relationship and the grandest adventure that you could ever experience in life. So maybe we we should talk a little bit about the roles of how does this work? How does the Trinity work? And why is it important how the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit interact with each other? It's complicated. And we want to be clear about that off the top, that we are not about to solve all things Trinity that have all questions about the Trinity that have always existed. There is certainly a almost a beautiful sense of divine mystery when we talk about this doctrine. Certainly there's no way for us to know every intricate detail of how the Father interacts with the Son and how the Son interacts with the Spirit. But I do think that Scripture gives us quite a bit of information about how that works. I do think Scripture gives us quite a bit of information of who the Father is, who the Son is, and who the Holy Spirit is, how they interact with each other and what their individual roles are within this one Godhead, this one divine essence eternally existing in three distinct persons. And if if God does reveal himself that way in Scripture, which I think he does, Again, it's, it's important to state this, this fact that you cannot love what you do not know. And so if we're going to experience this love that God has designed us for, if we're going to experience this loving relationship that God has purposed for you, I think it's important to, to know who we're talking about. It's important to know God. It's important to know the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Since everything starts with the Father, our whole understanding of the Trinity starts with understanding the Father. What are the roles of God the Father? Yeah, that's that's huge. So I think that's true. And, and let me even just say before we dive into the roles, this is a $5 phrase, if you will. The Trinitarian economy. How things work within the economy of the Trinity. And again, there's some mystery in this, but I do think we see this in Scripture and we'll share a few passages in, in just a few minutes but here is, here's most simply how the Trinitarian economy works. All things, all things in scripture, all things in redemptive history, all things in the universe flow from the Father, through the Son, and by the Holy Spirit. From the Father, through the Son, and by the power of the Holy Spirit. So then, as we, as we begin to try to understand as best we can, again, by the power of the Holy Spirit, who each person of the Godhead is within this one divine essence, three distinct persons, I think we do start with the Father because all things come from the Father and all things ultimately go to the Father. And so who is God the Father? Well, God the Father is one who sends. He is one who creates. He is one who, through the agency of the Son, by the Holy Spirit, creates all things. All things go to the Father. All things are from the Father. The Father is not proceeding. The Father is the Alpha and the Omega. He's the beginning and end of all things. That's a beautiful definition, Connor. What about the Son? So the Father sends, the Son is sent. The Father sends, and the Son is sent. The Son, the Son of God, is the agent of the Father's activity. The Father does everything through the Son. The Son is the one through whom the Father does all things, and the Son is also not proceeding. The Father sends He is not proceeding. All things come from the Father. 
The son is the agent of the father's activity. He is sent by the father and the Holy Spirit. God, the Holy Spirit is sent. God, the Holy Spirit is sent by the father, sent by the son. And the Holy Spirit is the means of all things. All things happen from and to the father. They come from the father through the son and all things happen by the means of the Holy Spirit. Everything that the Father does is done for you and to you by the power of the Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit eternally proceeds from the Father and from the Son. That sounds complicated, hopefully helpful. Again, of course, this is something that it's very complicated to understand because we serve a mysterious and glorious and wonderful God. Maybe we could look at some examples in scripture to hopefully clarify this a little bit. That would be huge because we do not ever want to be people who are just pulling things out of thin air. All truth that we understand, all things that we can know ought to be rooted in scripture and we hope that they are. So I do think that we see this kind of Trinitarian economy, this flow of all things from the Father, through the Son, and by the power of the Holy Spirit. That's our phrase for this episode, all right, if we haven't guessed that yet. From the Father, through the Son, and by the power of the Holy Spirit. So let's, let's look at some scripture. Hopefully that's helpful. Obviously, we want to be a people who root all our thoughts about God in the way that God has chosen to reveal himself, which is through scripture. So let's start in Romans, if you don't mind. Let's look at how the Apostle Paul describes this Trinitarian economy in the first five verses of the fifth chapter of Romans. All right, here we go. Therefore, since we have been declared righteous by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. We have also obtained access through him by faith into this grace in which we stand and we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. And not only that, but we also rejoice in our afflictions because we know that affliction produces endurance. Endurance produces proven character and proven character produces hope. This hope will not disappoint us because God's love has been poured out in our hearts through the Holy Spirit who is given to us. Yes. So in that passage, you see the father desiring to reveal himself and you see that the Father reveals himself through the Son and by the Holy Spirit. In verse 2 here, we see what, what the Apostle Paul is saying. And I know that this is complex, but I, I'm hoping and praying that this is helpful for understanding who our God is and how he works. So in verse 2, the Apostle Paul writes, We have also obtained access to the Father through him by faith into this grace in which we stand. So God the Father has revealed himself through the Son. And that's one of the significant aspects of, of the ministry of Jesus Christ on earth. The importance of the Son of God taking on flesh incarnate as Jesus Christ to reveal to us the beauty and glory of God the Father. So the Father is revealed through the Son. And you actually see this, this simple truth that maybe that's our biggest takeaway here in, in Romans chapter 5. The Father is revealed through the Son. If we are to know God, if we are to love God the Father, that happens by understanding who the Son is because the Father is revealed through the Son. So we see that throughout this chapter in, in Romans 5, also in verses 10 and 11 quickly. For if while we were sinners, we were reconciled to God through the death of his Son. So not only is God revealed through the Son, but God reconciles us to himself through the Son. And that's Jesus Christ. Yeah, it is. Amen. God saves us through Jesus Christ. We can also look at, at 17 paints this truth that God reveals himself through the son. God saves us through the son in Romans 5, 17. Since by one man's trespass, that's Adam, death reigned through that one man, Adam. Thanks, Adam. <laughs> how much more will those who receive the overflow of grace and the gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ? 
So just as through Adam, we were all destined to die, basically, because Adam is the first human created. He disobeyed God, and through that disobedience, sin and death entered the world. Jesus Christ, then, is the new and better Adam. He fulfills the role that Adam was meant to play in the garden by becoming the one through whom we can be reconciled to God, the one through whom we can enter back into the paradise that God has designed us for, the one through whom we can enter back into the presence of God that God the Father designed us to experience. And lastly, the 21st verse of this chapter says more of the same. So that just as sin reigned in death, so also grace will reign through righteousness, resulting in eternal life through Christ Jesus our Lord. So God the Father reveals eternal life through Christ Jesus our Lord. If you are saved, if you know God, if you love God, it is because that has happened by the Father revealing himself, saving you, reconciling you to himself through Jesus Christ. That's some good truth right there. We also have another chunk of scripture from Ephesians 1, 3 through 14, and I'm going to read that quickly here. Blessed is the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavens in Christ. For he chose us in him before the foundation of the world to be holy and blameless in love before him. He predestined us to be adopted as sons through Jesus Christ for himself, according to the good pleasure of his will. Let me pause you right there. Yeah. So just what we see in those first few verses is the father revealing himself and revealing himself to his children through the son. That's all. So that's, this is the point that we're trying to make here. We know that this might seem complicated and why are we diving so deep into this? Again, we think it's important that if, if God has revealed himself in this way, it's significant for us as, as theologians, as all of us are, to steward this responsibility well and to position ourselves in the best place to know God and love him. And this is how God has revealed himself, that the Father has saved us through the Son. The Father has revealed his own nature and character to us through the Son. Continuing with verse 6, to the praise of his glorious grace that he lavished on us in the beloved one. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace, that he richly poured out on us with all wisdom and understanding. He made known to us the mystery of his will according to his good pleasure that he purposed in Christ as a plan for the right time to bring everything together in Christ, both things in heaven and things on earth in him. In him we have also received an inheritance, because we were predestined according to the plan of the one who works out everything in agreement with the purpose of his will, so that we who had already put our hope in Christ might bring praise to his glory. In him you also were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and when you believed. What a beautiful passage of scripture. And I think, again, the point here is that the Father has saved us and revealed himself to us through the Son. And then what we saw at the end of that passage was all of that happens. We are sealed in our salvation. We are guaranteed our salvation because of the Holy Spirit, by the power of the Holy Spirit. And, oh, and verse 14 says the Holy Spirit is the down payment of our inheritance until the redemption of this possession to the praise of his glory. Isn't that a, isn't that a glorious example that the Spirit is this down payment, this protector, the role of the Holy Spirit is to sanctify us, to seal us, to ensure that we become more and more like God, that we understand more and more of God, because that's the means through which the Father acts. The Father acts through the Son and by the power of the Holy Spirit. So all things that we see throughout Scripture, whether it's creation, happens from the Father, through the Son, and by the power of the Holy Spirit. Whether it's salvation, that happens from the Father, through the Son, and by the power of the Holy Spirit. The end of all things will come from the Father, through the Son, and by the power of the Holy Spirit. 
Okay, so this is really complex and confusing. Could we maybe have some kind of example to show us what this looks like? It is. It is. And we're done. We're done with the complex, confusing talk. We're going to talk practicality now. How can we talk about this? If we are to know and love this complex, beautiful, mysterious triune God, how can we talk about it? Well, warrior, consider this. All right? Consider this example. God the Father, hypothetically, could be the colonel. His being, what he is, is a service member. But his role as the colonel is distinct from other service members. His role as the colonel or as the commander is one who writes the orders of what he wants done. God the Son then, hypothetically, could be the lieutenant. His being, what he is, is also a service member. The same as the colonel. Both service members, both equal in what they are with a distinct role. The role of the son, the role of the hypothetical lieutenant, is to make arrangements for the commander's intent, for the will of the colonel or commander to be done. So this lieutenant then is the agent through which the colonel accomplishes his will or his intent. And lastly, hypothetically, God the Holy Spirit could be the senior enlisted personnel, where his being, what he is, is also a service member. Most simply, the being, the essence, what they are is all the same, is all equal, and yet the senior enlisted hypothetical Holy Spirit example has a different role. The role is to carry out and apply the commander's intent. Wait, okay, hold on. Are they all the same level? Because when you think about the military, the colonel's higher than the lieutenant, and are all the godheads the same, or do they have different authority, or how does that work? It's a great question, and honestly, this is one where some people might disagree. But an important point to bring up from the question you ask, no example or metaphor of the Trinity is good. Like, there's, there's nothing that we can really come up with to perfectly describe the relationship that the Godhead shares within itself. They're all humanly flawed. All the, the examples, all the examples and that we're giving are... are humanly flawed. They are limited 100%. So this example is terrible because <laughs> I think that, that God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit are all the same rank, if you will. If we're, if we're going with this military example, they're all at the, at the level of five-star general. They are as high as you can go. They are authoritative equally. They share the same rank, the same divine essence, the same power, yet they just have distinct roles. So certainly this this metaphor has flaws, which, which brings us to maybe perhaps we could talk about some other metaphors that are flawed. Well, in the book, there was two about the egg and the water. The egg and the which, water. Which I had never heard prior to this. So that was kind of... The egg one at first made sense to me. When I first read it, I was like, oh, this is a good example. And then he was like... Michael Reeves, the author, was like, uh, no, this is not a good example. And I was like, what? I don't understand, but okay. Right. So, <laughs> so this metaphor of the egg is like, okay, the, the trinity is like an egg where there's a hard shell on the outside. There's an egg white on the inside and then a yolk on the inside. There's three different parts of this one egg, just like the trinity. And it makes sense. I was like, yes, this is a good example. All right. It's not. <laughs> it's, it's not. <laughs> and, and in some sense, in all these, like in our silly military example and this egg example, there is some benefit perhaps to trying to wrap your head around these things. The danger in, in the egg example, well, let's introduce the water one as well because the danger is the same for the both. Right. So I, I never heard of the water one either, which is basically like God could be described as water, which is water can be vapor, water can be ice, or water can be water. So that kind of explains the Trinity. But that's a bad example because... Because the danger in all of these, in the military example, in the egg example, in the water example, is it's actually heresy. Bum, bum, bum. What is heresy? Yeah, that's a very important thing to define. Heresy is 
a false, a dangerously false idea about God. Most simply, most basically, I think heresy is a dangerously false assumption about God that would lead you to an incorrect conclusion about who God is. So maybe one quote-unquote popular or common heresy that we see even today, even in our culture, even in modern Christianity today, is this idea of modalism. And that's a big word, but what that, what that most simply means is that God is simply one divine being, one divine person who manifests or appears as three distinct people. Water could be liquid, water could be vapor, or water could be solid. Um, but it's not ice, liquid, or vapor at the same time. Correct. They're, they're not all uh, unique, distinct, eternally existing. And so that's where all our metaphors will fall short. What about the egg? I mean, the egg is existing at the same time as a shell, an egg white, and a yolk. Like, what's the problem there? <laughs> it is, it is, but it just doesn't do the Trinity justice. I think, I think that's probably part of the problem in all these metaphors as well, is that nothing that we, in our creativity, though God has given us a creative gifts to enjoy and practice and, and to flourish in, we ultimately fall short to describe the beauty and wonder and majesty and grandeur of our triune God. And so while like, I, I think that these are kind of fun to talk about, I don't have as much of a problem as, as maybe other people do. I do think it's important to note that all these metaphors fall short of the glory of God, just as we all do. But that God has eternally existed as three distinct persons within one divine essence, and there's just nothing else like God. God is unworthy and unable to truly be compared to anything else in all of creation. He's not an egg. He's not an egg. <laughs> He's not an egg. He's not H2O. He's not a colonel. He's certainly not a lieutenant or an enlisted personnel. Come on. <laughs> or yeah. But uh, but God is, he's glorious. He's beautiful. He's triune. And it is helpful, I think, to think through these things, to walk through a, a, an egg example, to walk through a water example and to try to wrap your head around them. Uh, but we do want to provide that clear warning that um, this heresy that we introduced called modalism, I think there is a danger in all our metaphors to slip into that kind of thinking, even if we don't realize it. I think that this is actually way more common in our churches than we would realize. This this modalism heresy where we think that God is one. Jesus normal this heresy is normally taught as Jesus is God and Jesus sometimes appears as the Father, sometimes appears as the Son, sometimes manifests or appears as the Holy Spirit. And that's just not our God. That's just not our God. That's not how God has revealed himself in scripture. And again, as we try to uh, maybe even painfully explain at the beginning of this episode, that God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, who has eternally experienced perfect love, perfect fellowship within the triune nature, created us out of an abundance of love. And if we are to experience that love, if we are to experience the joy that's available in the presence of God and knowing God, we have to speak accurately about him. We have to know who we're talking about. But as I said, I think that this, this kind of unfortunate, heretical, dangerous, false understanding of God is way more common than we might think. And let me give you an example, an example that, that you might hear in your church, an example that I have heard in churches that I have served with, with men that I know. If I asked them, hey, do you believe in modalism? And I explained what it is, they would say, absolutely not. And yet a prayer that they might pray is, Father, we thank you for dying on the cross for me. That's that's the heresy. That is saying that, that God is one who just sometimes appears as the Father, sometimes appears as the Son, sometimes appears as the Spirit, instead of one divine essence and three distinct persons. The Father didn't die on the cross. The Son did. And while that might sound technical and nerdy and might sound like I'm making a bigger deal about this, again, we just think it's important to talk about God, to know God as he's revealed himself. And listen, if, if you, I have certainly prayed this way before in my Christian life. 
God gives us the gift of faith and we are to work out our knowledge as best we can and continually grow over a long period of time. There's grace. There's an abundance of grace. Where sin abounds, grace abounds all the more. And so we don't want you to listen to this and stress out and overthink. When I talk about this with my wife sometimes, then that poor woman will will pray for us at night or pray for us over a meal. And she'll like stop and look at me and be like, was that right? <laughs> did, did I say that right about this person of the Trinity? And we, we don't want that. I don't want to communicate that legalistic or hyper-focused technicality. So there's grace, there's an abundance. God wants us to try to know him, to try to articulate these truths about him. And that's all we can do is is to surround ourselves with like-minded believers, embed ourselves within the local church, and safely work out our understanding of the triune God by speaking these things, by sharing these truths, and by seeking to know and love God who has revealed himself as one divine nature, eternally existing in three distinct persons. Connor, I believe that this is a very complex yet important subject to talk about, and I'm so glad that we got the chance to discuss it today. I'm looking forward to our next episode where we'll be talking all about God the Son. Don't forget to hit the subscribe button and turn on notifications in order to continue to support us and stay tuned on the following episodes. Thank you for listening to us. If you want to trust in Christ, or if you want to learn more about making Him the authority over your life, or if you want to learn more about us, send us a message on our Instagram at WGMHQ. That's WGMHQ. We will make sure that someone gets in touch with you. This has been Warrior Podcast with Connor Shanahan. Warrior God Ministries' mission is to change the world by making disciples among military members and first responders and equipping them to be disciple makers and missionaries in their respective communities for the glory of Jesus Christ.